We're talking tens of billions of dollars. This is the largest corruption scandal in the history of the world that's been revealed. Welcome to the Global Inquirer, where we take a look at intriguing case studies to help examine how global trends are affecting real lives and international relations. I'm your host, Nico Marsic, and today I'm joined by Derek Wong and Walter Sharon. Derek is an economics and math major, and Walter is a prospective politics major, both researchers at the Global Inquirer. Derek and Walter, thanks for coming on. Thanks so Thank much. You. So today our case study is going to take us into Brazil where we're going to look at a huge corruption probe called Lava Jato, or Car Wash. And we're going to take a look at a specific individual, Nestor Cervero, who was the executive of the state-owned oil company, Petrobras, and talk about his role in the corruption scandal. To broadly explain uh, the global trend of corruption in developing economies and how their political systems respond to this systemic corruption. And furthermore, we want to explain whether or not Corruption probes like Lava Jato can improve institutions or political systems in and of itself. So, Walter, I want to go to you first. Um, the arrest of Nestor Cervero really, really sparked the corruption scandal to become one of the biggest in in not only Brazilian history but in you know the history of the world. Right, important part where everything starts to pick up is in January of 2015 um, when a plane lands uh, with Nestor Severo, who's a wealthy oil executive for Petrobras uh, lands, and he's immediately arrested. Um, and although this is shocking to him, he's not ready for that, just to call his lawyer and everything, it's somewhat business as usual. Um, this happens from time to time as corruption scandals are somewhat widespread in Brazil, um, but nothing was expected of this kind of precedent. Um, so what was different in this case? So I guess we could begin with where it all starts. It starts with car washes or other small businesses that are often fronts for money laundering, um, which isn't incredibly new or anything like that. But as the investigation kind of progressed, it started to link to Petrobras, this oil company. Once they pinned it down on these executives uh, and they talked to Severo and the money man Costa, they decided to look at this judicial process in a new way. So based on 2013, they kind of added plea bargaining to how the judicial process works. So in that sense, um, they're allowed to shorten their sentences by ratting out who else is in this system. But the prosecutor who is on this case, uh, Sergio Moro, it's important to add that he also said that wealthy criminals are not allowed to use bail to get out of jail time. So they are legitimately forced to either talk or pay time. And so Nestor Severo, was he thrown in jail? Was he indicted? What ended up happening to him? Right. So he was arrested uh, and then he was tried. And he wasn't the one who actually confessed everything. It was Costa who was the one who um, really untied everything because he had all the links to where the money came from and where the money went. Who is Costa? So Costa is also an oil executive with Petrobras. Um, he was... As the investigation has shown, he is the the money man, the man who is in charge of all the different communications. And back to Cervero, what what happened when when he went to prison? Like it's hard to believe that all these high level oil executives just spent a ton of time in prison. Right. This was a completely new 
arena for them. They're not used to how prison looks like. And it's important to note that in Brazil, all organized crime um, members who are indicted are kind of put in the same place. So it's it's a ruthless arena. An example of how outside of his realm this was, he was while he was waiting transport to go to the next station for his trial, um, he was told he had to sleep on this mattress and he refused to do it. He said, you know, I'm more important than this. But then quickly they told him that, you know, he has no choice. In other prisons, when wealthy um, executives or other high white-collar criminals come into prison, they don't really know how to take care of themselves because it's always been done for them. For example, some people just don't know how to shave because they've always been shaved before. And, and this gives you an idea of how high up the executives are who are being sent to jail and how big this corruption probe really is. So later on, we'll talk a little bit more about how you know, corruption is intertwined with the political system in Brazil. Um, but first, before that, I want to jump back to the interview that we had with uh, Professor Alfred Montero of Carleton College, who teaches a lot of politics courses on Latin America and has written a book called Brazil, Reversal of Fortune, which we'll get into a bit later. In this answer, he touches on the origins of the investigation and what actually went down before Nestor Cervero was uh, taken from the airplane, just as Walter described previously. You know, the way I explain it, oftentimes I think I think you have to go back to the transition to democracy in Brazil. That's actually the point of departure for the for the last book that I wrote about Brazil, sort of considering and that that analysis was uh, really an an analysis of the first two decades or so of Brazilian democracy. Um, and there was an extraordinary turnaround from a hyperinflationary economy with weak institutions, a weak democracy, certainly a young democracy, to a, a democracy that seemed to function a whole lot better by uh, the time that we're talking about. So about when I finished writing the book, it was 2013. It was published in 2014. Lava Jato exploded in 2014. It was timely, that is, looking back, but uh, you know, clearly this had been going on for a long time. And so I think as I explain this, I go back to the Constitution of 1988. Uh, many of the institutions that were are responsible for investigating Lava Jato, particularly the public ministry, the uh, the federal prosecutor, the various prosecutorial judges, uh, Sergio Moro in Paraná being the the primary one, um, but all the all the uh, public ministries of the states and the federal public ministry and the federal police, which are effectively the DEA, the FBI, um, you know, and customs all rolled into one agency. You know, these, these institutions really became even more professionalized and protected and became more uh, legally embedded in the new democracy during the 1990s. And so there were corruption scandals earlier in Brazil's democracy. In every single case of corruption, there was a reaction. And the reaction was to pass new laws that would strengthen transparency, strengthen accountability, strengthen public oversight. So when you fast forward to 2013, something very interesting happened in this latest episode. Dilma Rousseffi was president. Uh, the country was preparing for the World Cup, for hosting the World Cup in 2014. There were um, 
massive uh, street demonstrations in June of 2013 against inefficiency in the public sector, hospitals that didn't work, schools that were underfunded, and corruption. And so in response to these public demonstrations in all the major cities of Brazil, the Congress passed several important pieces of legislation in August of that year. Uh, most notably was uh, legislation that empowered the federal police and prosecutorial judges to use plea bargain testimony. And so as Walter mentioned previously, the incorporation of plea bargaining into the way that Brazil began to prosecute these corruption cases had a really big impact and really drove the prosecution of this investigation. Derek, can you talk about after Severo actually was indicted and sent to prison, how this Lava Jato investigation has continued to expand and really hit, you know, across all political institutions, political parties, mm-hmm. and companies in Brazil. Yeah, so the scale of the Lava Yato investigation is kind of unprecedented. It's this massive operation spanning um, p- uh, politicians, political parties, corporations, companies, public public companies, private companies, all over the place in Brazil, and even to the point where it's become transnational. Um, Like you touched on, the plea bargaining legislation that was passed in 2013 was really crucial to this. And because the actual corruption scheme itself was very, very complicated, involving um, the heads of the political parties cooperating or directing executives in state-owned companies, as well as private corporations and a complicated system of kickbacks. So the plea bargaining system was used to target these mid-level executives like Cervero, uh, like Costas, who were not the people at the top of the chain directing the whole thing. But by getting them to accept these plea bargains, they were able to target or get evidence in order to target the top of the chain, the party leaders, the big political players. And to provide a little bit more context, uh, Professor Montero actually goes into detail about how the bids ex- bids itself within these companies were actually structured to the way that the high-level officials didn't really have or potentially could not have had knowledge of the corruption going down you know, just under them at slightly lower but still executive levels of, of these companies. What's interesting is also, it, it's also the case that because this this was a cartelized process. The corruption was in the bid. It was already baked into the price. So if the, guys in ch- the guy in charge of the budget signs off on the price, that, that license goes to the directorate of Petrobras. So there are people above Costa who supposedly engage in some auditing of these bids. But, be, you know, the, the bid that wins is the lowest bid, but it's still overpriced. The auditors don't know that because supposedly the market has spoken. But the market was the market was fixed. So this is, I mean, it's quite ingenious. It's quite ingenious. So when we say, hey, this is Brazil, it's not just the political parties. It's the companies. It's the market. And you can have entirely transparent and, and powerful systems of oversight, as, as Petrobras had and still has. There are uh, courts of auditors in the Brazilian Congress, and you know they're looking at the same data 
and they come to the conclusion that the market has spoken. So where's the corruption? The corruption is in the structure of the thing. And that's why I was able, that's why they, they were able to take as much as they took. Um, we're talking tens of billions of dollars. This is the largest corruption scandal in the history of the world that's been revealed. Yeah, and so then the professor goes into a little bit more detail about how the political parties are really intertwined in this corruption case. I think it's kind of interesting how the corruption kind of cuts across all the political parties, center right and center left. How corruption is so how corruption in this case was so mainstream. Well, because that's the way the system worked. You know, uh, when I, I mentioned uh, Paulo Roberto Costa, I mean, one of the things that I do in my research is I actually, you know, sit through hours and hours of their depositions. And, you know, Costa was asked this very, this very question by federal prosecutors a couple of years ago in one of his first depositions. And, and he said, look, that's Brazil. I mean, what am I describing? I'm describing Brazil. This is the way the system has has operated. And it doesn't matter if it's a political party of the left or the right. It's a very transactional political system. Ideology is very weak in Brazil. It, it doesn't ideology doesn't pay the bills. So a, it, it's it's essentially clientelism. Uh, center right, center left parties will do deals, will do business with one another, and this is part of the business. Now we know because the, the you know the, the ugliness of it has been uh, revealed quite quite well through these investigations that this in, this involves the public sector that involves production. Now, what's interesting too is that everything still functions. That is, they still were able to get oil out. <laughs> Brazil's going to start exporting oil probably within a year and a half. Um, they were still able to uh, do the things that they needed to do. The economy still produced. It, it still continued to industrialize. Um, but the, the inefficiency of the, the, of the system is, is quite shocking. How much money was embezzled for, for the political parties, how much money was, was used on bribes that enabled the system to go forward so that certain executives could be paid and the like. Uh, and it's quite extensive. And what's more startling is that, you know, fine, the economic system can continue to function and continue to function, you know, quite smoothly. But the fact that the economy functions and the politicians can't even be tried is what really sort of struck us while we were interviewing Professor Montero. I mean, another thing to think about here is that according to the law, um, especially the judicial reform that was passed in 2004, no sitting politician can be tried um, outside of the Supreme Court. Right? So although they've gotten all these executives to turn state's evidence and they've gotten prosecuted, convicted, and jailed, we don't have a politician yet that has gone through that process because they have immunity. It's, it's called foro privilegiado, privileged forum. The literal translation doesn't doesn't do its justice. It's essentially parliamentary immunity. So as long as they're in office or they have a cabinet position, then they are immune from further prosecution. 
in this sense, do you think that Lava Jato is actually like improving political institutions and accountability or just sort of a reflection of problems that continue to undermine Brazil's institutions? That's a $64,000 question. And every Brazilianist is asked that question today. And we, we, we tend to say very similar things that based on what we know right now, this could go in a variety of different directions. The most negative would be a retaliation by the political class to pass legislation that would basically defrock the prosecutorial judges like Sergio Moro, um, weaken the constitutional protections on the public ministry and the federal prosecutor's office, politicize the courts by putting in appointments. You know, that's, that, that's, a, that's a dark scenario. And then what might emerge in the election in 2018 might be a populist figure. One, one candidate for this would be Jair Bolsonaro from Rio, who is a, a, a very far right-wing uh, nationalist figure with very, very ugly views of Brazilian society and um, and uh, very scary opinions um, about a, about a variety of things concerning democracy. And so, so all of those are the kind of negative scenarios. The positive scenario is that these institutions withstand those threats. So far, they have, and that the prosecutions go forward. It, it's going to take a long time. With with the Mensalão scandal from 2006, it took seven, eight years to actually put the people who were responsible in jail. It's definitely going to take that long to get some of these politicians. And if these institutions work, that maybe past 2020, Brazil, Brazilian democracy might arguably be stronger. But from, you can't see all of that from, from here. So what Professor Montero was just talking about there is sort of the implications of the Lava Yato investigation. And we see that when we have corruption of this scale that's been revealed, cutting across party lines, cutting across political systems, uh, corporations, both state-owned and private, the scale is just staggering. And so you know, most sitting politicians are in some way implicated. Most of the politicians in uh, either of the houses of their parliament or uh, the, in the executive branch, uh, most of them are implicated in some way by Yavalato. So the concern is, well, if all the mainstream political parties are implicated in this corruption crisis, does that create an opening for the type of populist candidate that Professor Montero just mentioned? Since you have this, uh, this corruption investigation that is totally discrediting the mainstream political system. I think it really does create a big opportunity for a kind of populist candidate, someone, it could be something positive, so a candidate who's very reform-minded and wants to sort of reform the institutions of government and uh, increase uh, political independence of judges and the judiciary and the prosecutorial system, or in the opposite direction, a populist kind of leader who's taking advantage of the current political circumstances to uh, take to assert more power and try to fix things through a more centralized and more heavy-handed way. So I think there's a lot of risks, but also a lot of opportunities for Brazil's government going forward. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you could see some parallels with the way that things could play out in Brazil with the way that Duterte is kind of cracking down on institutions in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's the institutional level, with which I think Lava Jato is trying to, to take a look at. But there's also the, you know, the hardline heavy-handed approach that President Duterte of, of um, excuse me, of the Philippines has taken recently. And he's, he's gotten a lot of criticism by human rights um, advocates in the region, but at the same time, you know, nothing is really stopping him from, from, you know, trying to, trying to really crack down on not only institutional violence, but also corruption. Yeah, I think it's, Duterte is a good example, because here you have a very strong man style of leadership, someone who's saying, look, we see there's huge problems in society and I'm going to fix it. And the way for me to fix it is to have the power to fix it. And that's a risk that could happen in Brazil. And so let's let's jump back to the to the interview here, because we talk a little bit about what other countries can learn in this scenario. Like maybe in the Philippines, they could learn something from how the Lava Jato investigation was handled and structured. One cannot ignore the role of the corporations and and how, I mean, without, as I said before, without the cartelized structure of bidding, it, it would have been impossible to organize all of this. The second thing, and this is fairly practical, the weak link in the corruption network was the money laundering. If you are a fan of the of, of the series Breaking Bad, you know that in drug trafficking, the problem is not production or distribution or even protection. The problem is what do you do with all of the cash? How do you wash it? How do you make it on track? Where do you store it? Um, how do you transform it so that um, you can maintain the network? So, you know, the story of Lava Jato is instructive in that if you put all of or put most of your investigatory uh, efforts and resources into tracking money and, and really going after money laundering networks and tax havens abroad and bank secrecy and all of that, if those institutions start to break down, then you can't do this. You, you can't have this kind of corruption network. The success of these network of the, of the investigators in breaking down money laundering is partly due to the fact that we've really started to pay attention in the West, especially, to the way that money laundering is done. And it's a transnational phenomenon. This is not just something that, that happened within Brazil. It could not have just simply happened within Brazil. It had to involve transnational um, transactions and banks and tax havens. Even if you have a country like Brazil that doesn't investigate this, assuming Brazil didn't investigate this, the fact that a company like Oldebrecht is doing business in the United States or Petrobras is doing business in the United States makes them subject to prosecution by the Department of Justice or investigation by the SEC. So the transnational aspect of this cannot be ignored. Um, those are all very, very important lessons. And I think that it, it they're, they're positive lessons. It leads to um, a more optimistic view that that maybe um, 
the, 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 the prosecution, investigation, and transparency um, institutions are only going to get stronger because they're, they're built on uh, these larger transnational processes and institutions, um, and no one government can overturn that. So I think what we can see from what Professor Montero has said here is money laundering being an opportunity for um, anti-corruption investigation. I think we see interesting parallels here with um, the pro- FBI probe led by Bob Mueller, or I should say the special counsel probe led by Bob Mueller um, into the alleged uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election. And the recent indictments that the grand jury handed down to people like Paul Manafort and to other associates of that campaign, those indictments weren't about collusion, but in fact, they were about white collar crime, financial crimes, you know, things not being disclosed properly, um, people not filing as foreign agents. So a lot of, a lot of what um, criminal agencies are doing these days in terms of corruption, it's not just about, you know, kickbacks and bribes, but a lot of it is about money laundering. And that proves to be like a really, a really big opening point for these kinds of agencies. Right. And I think that's a really important distinction to make, um, especially since although these big controversies really stem from kind of minor financial white collar crimes, um, it's important to note that the brunt of these um, issues are felt by the people. As a professor noted, um, how Brazilians feel about all this is their the widespread sentiment is a lot of confusion and a lot of resentment for the political system. And stepping back a little bit into how important analyzing money laundering is in these probes, I think it's interesting that normally we would think that because money laundering has become transnational and you know these big oil executives can stick money overseas, it would be harder to actually indict them in corruption probes. But with the cooperation of law enforcement agencies like the FBI and Brazil's law enforcement, you can see that that cooperation in to indict these officials based on like transnational money laundering or putting money in tax havens overseas can have significant benefits to towards building the political institutions within Brazil or within the context of any sort of developing countries. But bringing us back to the theme of corruption and... Um, and how political institutions respond to systemic corruption, you know, like what can be done? Like what can be improved? I think what we can learn from it is uh, the idea that when you have sort of weak institutions of government and a political system that sort of encourages or requires a certain level of corruption to function as Brazil's political system historically has, at least for the past couple of decades, um, you need to strengthen institutions of government, especially independent institutions of government. So having the independent prosecutorial system. I mean, you know, the Workers' Party, when they came into power, one of the things they did was strengthen the uh, independent prosecutorial power. Uh, they And the prosecutors elected their own attorney general. And this attorney general ended up going after Lula da Silva, who is the former head of the uh, Workers' Party, um, the party very party that inst- instituted the reforms that brought that person to power. So you can see that, you know, having these independent independent systems, independent judiciaries uh, systems like Judge Sergio Moro, who's been super critical in, the, in Operation Lavallato, that is what ends up leading to ends up leading to convictions for corrupt politicians and corrupt business people. That is sort of the crucial aspect 
necessary for a for a bribery and corruption free state. Yeah, and I think um, it's especially important for other countries to look at this investigation and kind of think about what their future could look like if something like this would come up. And I think it's incredibly uh, important to kind of predict that this will kind of happen, especially in lieu of the Paradise Papers, um, which kind of gave a certain amount of scale to how widespread corruption in general is. So basically, you can assume that no one is exempt from possible corruption charges um, that's going to take over their uh, relationships between businesses and their politics. Okay, on that bright note, uh, I think it's a good place to end the show. Uh, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed hearing the story of Lava Jato investigation and how it could provide a good example for other developing countries uh, to improve their institutions and how, in general, uh, multinational corporations and political institutions can be completely intertwined in a lot of these developing countries. While you're at it, uh, you can go ahead and um, give us a rating on iTunes and like us on SoundCloud. We really appreciate all the support. And if you missed any of our previous episodes, you can check out our website, www.globalinquire.org. And tune in next week as we take a look at Mexico's southern border and the humanitarian crisis that has swept a lot of Central American migrants in the region. We'll see you next time.